This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. We've got two authors with us. We have. Again today. What a Mm. thrill. And so we better make a start. Food and culture go hand in hand in Jess Ho's memoir, Raised by Wolves. But perhaps what is revealed about that food culture is not what we expect. So Jess, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Food seems to be an expression of or substitute for affection in the early family recollections that opened this book. Care was expressed by laborious, intricate knife cuts with only a cleaver. Food and family. Strangely enough, it's not uh, just my family, but a lot of uh, immigrant Asian families that have it because you're raised to just study and do well and have vast earning potentials. And so while they're disciplining you and teaching you to have grit and grind, um, the only time that there is no I love you, there is no hug, there is nothing. It's like, here, I made your favourite dish, eat it. <laughs> You'll eat what's put in front of you and be grateful. But And then study. And, and then study. There's a lovely episode with your father who's going to take you to cook. But what does that involve? Uh, so he uh, taught me to kill a chicken. But there is an Australian equivalent. I can remember the chook pen in the backyard back in my day. So it's before the industrialisation of chickens. Everyone had a chook shed. And come Christmas or some occasion, it was a rarity to have chicken chop off the tomahawk. So there are parallels between our cultures. That's amazing. <laughs> but did your dad get a brick and a bucket? No, the tomahawk. The tomahawk and the chook would run around the backyard, headless, spurting blood. Oh, was, that's a that's a waste of good blood. That's a waste, yes. <laughs> but, again, today it would be frowned upon in terms of the way children are treated. Yeah, it's odd. I think um, that really early memory, I was you know, still in primary school at the time, uh, really informed the way that I eat now because if I'm not willing to kill it, I shouldn't eat it. Yeah. Um, but there's an expectation about behaviour, uh, which comes into contrast with this, given families, but also in within restaurants. There's another culture within the restaurant uh, in terms of how food should be treated. The parents will treat you like a free cleaner and babysitter while they let chaos unfold. So there's a clash of cultures here. Oh, yeah. As a server, it is quite wild um, when people bring their kids in. It's... It's strange because some people who are raised in restaurants, kind of like myself, you know, to sit there and uh, be be still and you discipline your kids. You know, restaurateurs who have children are very well behaved. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the general public just assume that your kids can run around in an environment where there are hot plates and hot liquids and sharp edges and broken glass everywhere and there will be no consequences. But also then, what we get is this sort of dichotomy between uh, the refinement of dining out and the actual reality that hospitality staff see. And you've got one description here that turns the stomach of, how shall we put it, sanitary items on the uh, bathroom floor. Refined guests and, and this. Uh, how, do, how do you account for that? 
Um, once people have a few drinks, they uh, show you who they really are. And who they really are is a little bit gross. Um, and after I wrote that and people have been reading it, I've been receiving so many direct messages on Instagram from people who work in bars and restaurants going, I'll tell you what I found. <laughs> But how do people behave like that? They've got this uh, image of refined dining, but the reality is something else altogether. I think a little bit of it is entitlement and the fact that they're like, I'm here for a service, you serve me, and whatever happens, I walk away from and I don't have to deal with later. And the hospitality staff will have to clean up. Generally, it's the hospitality staff, but we were very lucky in that situation. Then there's the culture of fast food. It's proof that you can adhere to company policy. Has food lost its refinement? Is it just near now a commercial enterprise? Well, I think because of the way that capitalism is and the way that Australia is and rising costs, if you don't look at your business like an enterprise, um, it's kind of like, what are you doing? You're not making any money. Uh, back in back in my day, uh, the average... <laughs> You're not old enough to say that. I am. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Am I 14 or 40? You can't tell. Uh, but, you know, back in my day, the average profit of a hospitality business, if you were doing well, was 5%. Now it's anywhere from, if you are making a profit, it's like 05 But when you look at McDonald's and uh, those sorts of enterprises... They've taken the quality out in some ways of food. It's it's just uh, processed. It's all a process. It is. Uh, but, you know, you get things out of it, like you do learn the processes. So when you learn particular processes and skills, you can apply them in a finer environment. Uh, that being said, I did hear a rumour when I was in high school, and I've never looked it up because... I wasn't interested, but I heard that uh, McDonald's isn't actually a hospitality business. It is a real estate business. Yes, I've heard that one as well. Uh, There's a book out, actually, um, on how McDonald's came into being and all the sort of ways it functions behind the scenes. And it's, it's appalling, employment and all of these other things. But behind these insights into the hospitality industry, there are accounts of your own personal struggles. Despite receiving perfect marks, I was visibly unhappy, antisocial, had no appetite and had massive issues with authority. So you actually go into some of the more confronting elements of your upbringing. I mean, you can't really tell a story about hospitality without bringing in humanity because it's the humans that make it hospitable. And I guess what I really wanted out of this book is for people to understand that hospitality workers aren't machines and, you know, terrible things happen to them all the time, but they show up and they give you the best time ever and maybe they deserve a little tip. But even how you were treated by within your own family was the confronting aspect that I found in the book. Yeah, unfortunately, it is, you know, not an uncommon thing, uh, especially in Asian families, uh, when there's a lot of expectation, but there is generational trauma that isn't addressed. And these people who have all this trauma that is left unchecked and undealt with uh, decide to have children and they're unable to parent. It's not just, yeah, uh, in one culture, it's in several. Did the hospitality industry and the camaraderie you found there substitute for family in that regard, do you think? Oh, definitely. Um, You know, 
I probably wasn't conscious of it when I was younger because I was like, oh, yay, people I can actually relate to and talk to um, and, you know, the people who have my back when I'm working and I, I never experienced that before. But as I grew older, I kind of realised that these friendships meant a lot more than just a friendship. Mm. But there are also accounts of dysfunction within the hospitality family, sexual harassment and all of that going on? Oh, I think that exists in every industry. Uh, but unfortunately, in hospitality, they are just open secrets. And I see very little, if not no consequences for the sexual harassers and, you know, underpayers and the abusers and the bullies. Well, it, it, yeah, there, there are still accounts in, the, in newspapers today about underpayments and all of these sorts of things, people getting away. Again, the commercialisation mm -hmm. has crept in rather than the personalities. You work yourself ragged the way you were raised, so this intergenerational thing is coming through here, influences your work ethic. I grew up not understanding when my body was telling me something was wrong to the point where what was wrong felt normal. So you've basically, um, that's early on in the book, but then later on, towards the end, you talk about, um, I wasn't even 30 yet, but I had to line my shoes with two sets of inner soles just so I could walk without wincing. Every single finger was cracked and bleeding from being constantly wet, dipped in chemicals, running dishwater, dishwashers and polishing glassware. My back hurt from lugging my office equipment to and from home every day because I couldn't afford an office space. It seems the way you were raised as a child is influencing your work ethic within the hospitality industry. Oh yeah, there's no such thing as resting. What is what is time off? What is a holiday? And then when you finish all the study and all the things that you need to learn, it's like, oh well, learn more. When I was a child, I remember my like parents bullied the local primary school into teaching me the entire syllabus uh, f up until grade six. And then they gave me the local high school. And then after that, they were like, we, there is no more that we can teach her. And that is also why I was antisocial and everything because I couldn't relate to my peers. And uh, then it was like, oh, okay, we're just going to take you into, like, advanced tutoring. <laughs> but that would also speak to a, a very severe intelligence of yours in terms of your ability anyway to be able to cope with all of that. Um, you know, when it's happening and you're a kid, you don't realise. And, you know, my parents and I think a lot of immigrant kids, they get told that 100%, fine, anything. Like, that is, that is the lowest bar. That's the baseline. Anything lower <laughs> than get out of the house. So we were never told that we did good. So, like, you, know, you don't know what you're chasing. Another influence we've got in the book is the television industry and the attempt to make a, a um, what would you call it, a series. Again, it imposes an expectation on behaviour and conduct and there's a hierarchy and status and, and even um, what's your makeup situation like? I don't have a makeup situation. That expectation from television influencing the food culture, the food industry. Oh, yeah. I think it's because people who make television don't make restaurants. So how would they know? And, you know, I just remember, you know, in the first day they were like, oh, can we get you to wear this? And I'm like, I can't wear that on the floor. And they're like, why not? I'm like, occupational health and safety rules. And they're like, no one's ever said that to us before. I'm like, have they been a hospitality professional? And they're like, oh, actually, no. So is television influencing the dining experience, do you think? Uh, I think it's 
influencing Diana's expectations uh, because everyone who works in hospitality looks at it. It's like when a doctor watches Grey's Anatomy. They're like, oh, what is this? They should all be in jail. (laughs) But now we get on to the way you tell your story, which is very blunt. My throat was sore from forcing a higher, softer register than my normal speaking voice so I could sound as white and trustworthy as possible because people still couldn't get their heads around a young Asian vagina owner giving wine recommendations or having industry experience. My face was numb from my false-ass, shit-eating smile. This is a very blunt and direct style of yours. Well, you know, sometimes you just have to tell it how it is because people don't listen when you're telling it the nice way. Do you think they've been receptive then? Um, I hope. I hope so. Um, A lot of things that I hear are actually just from people in the industry going, I agree, I agree, me too. But do you think it'll have an influence then on the diners and what they think dining actually is and how to treat hospitality staff? Um, I think so. I received a message yesterday, actually, from someone who's never worked in hospitality before, uh, who is a professional diner and sometimes gets paid to write about their experiences. And they said, reading your book has made me want to change how I interact with staff and be a better person. Tremendous. Lastly, the epilogue. It gives us a clue then about fine dining. I put that in inverted commas. And it's not what we normally think of that term. The restaurant looks uh, as run down inside as it does outside. You have a... What is fine dining, do you think, therefore? Oh, look, some people like that structure. Like, fine dining is a European construct. You know, it's linen, it's having enough staff to cater for however many people are on the floor. You know, back in the day, it used to be one service person per diner. We can't afford that anymore. And, like, nowadays, a regular section waiter takes care of 25 to 30 people. Um, But, you know, it's not really a comment on fine dining, more just how I prefer to dine. And that is good food with no pretense. It seems a very familiar sort of environment. Well, the book is Raised by Wolves. The author is Jess Ho, and it was a really uh, an affirm press release. So, Jess, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me here. Well, this is going to move into our book. Very nicely, all about this eating and drinking. What's not to love about Paris? The food, the wine, the dressing, and that's where Kirsty Manning has taken us in her latest book, The Paris Mystery. Welcome back, Kirsty. Thank you. Lovely to be here. What I've always enjoyed about your books is the depth of research. You put that into where you've set this book. So when and where and why Paris? So I like to think of this book kind of set in that last sigh of summer before World War II, so 1938 Paris. And I chose Paris because because Paris, basically, (laughs) and because just in that pre-war period in Paris, it had escaped, the city had escaped the, I guess, the rack and ruin, the Great Depression that had swept across the rest of Europe. And they were having parties and summering on the coast and you know, filling their swimming pools up with champagne and dressing in couture, Chanel and Dior. They were all burgeoning fashion houses then and people would turn up to these parties clad head to toe, sometimes in two outfits, 
at these outrageous parties. And I wanted to capture that, you know, the parties, the cafes, the, the bookshops, that whole walking along the streets. And I started writing this when I was in lockdown. And so not travelling anywhere. And my books, are, um, it was interesting listening to Jess talk about generational trauma because, you know, as as readers will know, a lot of my uh, prior novels cover that issue not in an Asian context but often, well, there is mm-hmm. one, uh, the, the Song the of the Jay Lily. Lily, for families that have dealt with war and history and that has been my own research. And so, and it's heavy territory actually and it's quite... It's kind of hard researching and I found in lockdown I was reaching for something more joyous and lighter and we were cooking a lot, we were eating around the table, we were having long conversations and I I found like I was always reaching for murder mysteries because there's something joyful. Readers readers are going to laugh about this but there's something quite joyful about murder mysteries because they are, you know, they're solvable and manageable so... So from Australia and into Paris comes Charlie James. What job has Charlie got? Charlie is a journalist. Um, She's based on Louis Mack, a very early Australian war correspondent, actually. I I needed it to be a police procedural or a detective. Obviously, it's a hard-boiled detective novel, but it's really important that you make readers believe the setting and in 1938 a female policeman of any sort in Paris just would have been out of the question like (laughs) you know they might have worked in a secretarial role until they were married in the office but they certainly didn't work solving crimes so but they did there were a few Australian journalists that were the best at what they did in the field during the war. So that was there. Well, you you have, Charlie, going to hear one, Louis Mack, actually speak. Now, she, that's a real person. Uh, she was a, a, a foreign correspondent, Australian, into Belgium in um, World War One. She did uh, speaking tours. And that's where Charlie had the idea of becoming a foreign correspondent. She did. I just wanted to, you know, it's fun in fiction to play with these moments where real characters, um, fictional characters come off against real characters. I I always have a scene or two in in all of my books and it's it's fun to play with. And I thought, you know, for a middle-class girl in Sydney, I needed to show how she was stepping outside her comfort zone and where that inspiration would have come from at, at a time where women really did not have careers outside the home. So so she's working at The Times. Her boss, George Roberts, knows it's most important for her to make the right contacts. But it's actually his secretary, Violet Carthage, who really helps Charlie. Violet is a woman of independent means with a glamorous boyfriend. He's very glamorous. She's very glamorous. She's multilingual. Her mother was from Malaya, as it's called there. She'd grown up in London. She had a huge work ethic. And And always carries the Chanel handbag. And carries the Chanel handbag. What about a boyfriend? He's got an interesting job. He uh, is one of the Ateliers. He's a Russian immigrant. So there is that immigration Mm. story in there for both Violet and... We're going to hear a little bit about them from page 47. So this is Charlie at the designer's salon meeting Alexander, the Russian designer. 
He looked at Charlie and said warmly, This dress is a welcome gift. You can't go to the ball without couture. You'll just be seen as an ordinary member of the press. In my dress, you'll stand out and also attract attention to my design, so I benefit too. I'll be there. I can introduce you to some of my clients if you like. And she says, that, that's kind and an offer I'll gladly take up. Thank you. She ran her fingers across the soft silk. If she was going to report on Parisian society, she needed to look the part. She knew the transformative power of a beautiful dress. It was like the French lingerie she always wore under a sensible work clothes. Not to please someone else, but to make herself feel magnificent. And she must have done that because she went off to this party. This, And this is where the book opens. So who's hosting this most incredible party? So Lady Ashworth is hosting this uh, incredible party and she too is based on a real a real person, Elsie DeWolf, who was an interior designer. She was at first an actress and singer and almost in the burlesque style. She made her own costumes. Her family had lost their money in America. She went to London for finishing and then she toured Europe in these magnificent costumes and she knew she's I think she said something like my I knew my face was very plain so I I I used to make these costumes and I realized that you could make people believe anything in the right clothes so she was very transformative and she ended up back in New York and she started decorating houses she really was um, the world's first celebrity interior designer she she revamped the brownstones in New York for the Fricks and for the Vanderbilts. And she started importing antiques from Paris, loads and loads. I mean, I think the Atlantic ended up being some kind of freeway for her. (laughs) She was buzzing between New York and Paris. And eventually she moved to Paris, and this is true, and she and her partner, um, a woman, obviously, bought um, the the Villa Trianon and they they spent 20 years restoring it so right on the gardens and they threw the most extravagant parties and her partner passed which was very sad and she ended up marrying um, an English diplomat who was obviously a man and (laughs) they kept separate apartments in Paris but they had this meeting of society I guess it was a I'm sure they were friends obviously but it was certainly an arrangement that suited them both diplomat and society interior designer she got the benefit of work and he got the benefit of her social largesse and um, and they threw these ridiculous parties oh this one had elephants it had so much but there was also one man that Charlie was warned about as dangerous And Charlie saw he had a hint of cruelty lying beneath his handsome face. Who was Maxime Marchand? Uh, Maxime Marchand uh, was a merchant banker in the vein of the Rothschilds, I guess you would say, comparatively. And um, he funded, I mean, everyone at the party, that's it's. That's a fun thing. It's a bit Agatha Christie-esque. Everyone at the party is a little bit connected. And he, because he is a merchant banker, I needed somebody with lots of money and lots of people at the party who needed lots of money. So, um, mm. so you know. Now, we, these um, social gatherings require an event organiser and Lady Ashworth had called on Conrad McKenzie from America. He also had aspirations and abilities in another field that connected him to Charlie. So what was he? 
he started off being um, a right-hand man for Lady Ashworth. She was his assistant. He helped a lot in design. He'd been to art school in New York and he was also a very accomplished photographer. So he ends up as a stringer, which is a freelance photographer, with Charlie working on stories with her. And he gets wrapped up in the story as well. Does he ever? Because Conrad was in love with Millie. Now, she was a very wealthy Paris correspondent from Harper's Bazaar. And it was Millie's scream that stopped the party in the first five pages. So what had happened? Uh, Someone was killed. Without killing Millie. Millie had the knife. (laughs) (laughs) So onto the scene comes Inspector Benoit Bernard. What did Charlie think of him? You know, I think she was a bit bemused. I had a lot of fun writing that inspector because I wanted to write that uh, uh, quite a considered French man who, you know, obviously worked very hard to solve a case, but he took time for lunch and he liked his <laughs> he he liked his restaurant. He sat in the same corner table and you know ordered the the meal of the day the plat de jour and his little half carafe and you know I had fun writing those little French rituals into a detective's routine because it does make up the Parisian lifestyle I guess and so she they have very much a working relationship and quite combative I mean I think I don't think it's any secret that journalists and detectives while they're they're both on the hunt to solve a story they can be quite combative at times so um Mm. so it's fun it's fun to play with that so who did it so many reasons so many motives and when I thought I'd worked it out that character got killed too (laughs) so good murder (laughs) political idea of the time you know there was the problem with the Russians and and then the knife belonged to the Russian juggler and our fabulous Alexander was Russian too but the thing that is always the same is the ability of papers to want to put something in about the royals because it doubles the sales and who else was at this party of course, you can't beat a royal story and I have the Windsors at the party. And in, in real life, they were actually friends with Elsie de Wolf and, and her husband. And I think he was posted to Paris actually because he backed the wrong horse because, of course, he, he was deposed from being king or stepped back and so he um, was no longer king. So mm. they shuffled him along. He couldn't be in London with Chamberlain. So... I wanted to play with that. I had that moment where the chief of staff says, I don't care what happened at the party. I don't care if you don't know, you know, right now, if you know who did it or not, just give me something on the royals. Give us a photo. Give us a sentence. (laughs) Give us something. And I think, you know, people will recognise that. Now, this isn't the only grand Parisian party you've written about. There was another one that had a faux murder in it with Tilly Munro. That was the French gift, and if we've whetted your appetite with this, with this one, the French gift is also a very good read. You acknowledge John Brent's Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. How did this book help you? This book helped me. I often go back and I comfort read when I'm, and I did a lot of that in lockdown, and I think, I mean, while that is a, a memoir. 
what it really features is the city of Savannah as as a character. He really, mm. you know, it's not only the characters of Savannah that unfold, but the char- but the place. And you walk through the streets, you're in the house, and he's a very, very manipulative character. And the way his point of view is quite extraordinary. So I thought. That's mm. a good basis to kind of it's a good it's good to see how other writers well, do that. Talking about a basis, this is the first in this crime series about Charlie James. And we've got Parisian Parisian society pre-World War II with sumptuous parties, couture fashion, bohemian wine bars, plenty of secrets and a murder. The Paris Mystery is the start of a new crime series by Kirsty Manning and an introduction to Charlie James, foreign correspondent for the Times. Good read. Yes. And Jesse's, and we've got food and wine and all I've of those things. I've been to a marvellous party. It sounds like a Noel Coward affair, doesn't it? <laughs> really. Yeah. That's it. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.